This Marketplace podcast is supported by Invest Puerto Rico. Build the future in paradise. Puerto Rico, a hub for innovators brimming with world-class talent and a thriving entrepreneurial ecosystem. Learn more at investpr.org backslash marketplace today. Just like magic. I say it, Juan Carlos does it. Hey everybody, I'm Kai Rizdal. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. And I'm Novasafo, filling in for Kimberly Adams. Thanks for joining us, everybody. It's Tuesday, November 28th. Today, we're revisiting our climate series with a new topic, the circular economy. We have talked often, I think, uh, on this show about consumption uh, in the American economy. And, and the thing that happens when we consume things is most of the time we throw it away when we're done with it. Um, and that it just adds to the waste pile. It adds to the stress on the planet. It uses up our resources. Hence something called the circular economy, which some people believe could help us tackle the climate crisis uh, in a way. Callie Babbitt is professor of sustainability at Rochester Institute of Technology. Professor Babbitt, welcome to the podcast. Hi there. Thanks so much for having me. Circular economy, a 30-second definition, if you would. Well, we can think about circular economy by what it's not, and that is the traditional way of going about business, which is a linear economy. We take resources out of the ground, we use them, we make products, and then we ultimately waste them. The circular economy tries to connect both ends of, of that puzzle. And instead of taking resources from nature, we're actually reducing the amount of resources that it takes to grow our economy and provide good jobs and, and the products we all want. We try to keep those resources in use as long as possible and, and maintain their value. And then when we can no longer get value out of them at the end of life, we're trying to close those resource loops. So instead of becoming waste, they actually become the resources that feed into the new economy. Hmm. So where does this idea come from, uh, circular economy? I think that circular economy takes inspiration from a lot of sustainability concepts. I mean, we've always heard about reduce, reuse, recycle. But circular economy puts a new spin on this by rethinking waste as value. And a lot of this can actually take inspiration from the natural systems around us in the world. If you look at nature, it has evolved over billions of years to actually do many of the things we want to do now, like cycle nutrients, carbon, water, and resources, and the, where the waste from one process becomes the food for another. And so much of what we try to do in circular economy is actually emulate these natural resources that are really efficient at closing the loop and not creating waste that can't be managed. You mentioned the whole reduce, reuse, recycle thing, which is a generation or more old now, that saying and, and that idea. But I uh, so I did an interview about, God, I don't know what, maybe three years ago, two years ago, um, in which the concept of the circular accounting came up. It was broached to me in, in uh, it was about, you know what it was about? It was about printer cartridges and, and what a drain those are. And companies are trying mm -hmm. to re reuse those. Um and the circular economy came up, and I expressed uh, surprise that that was actually a thing. It was, like, new to me. And I guess my question is, we've been doing this for, for a very long time, but calling it something else, right? Sure. The, the ideas underlying the circular economy take inspiration from a lot of approaches that we've tried to do in the past. Right. But there's one really key difference. In our past approaches to dealing with waste, we were really putting a Band-Aid on the symptoms. We were trying to say, okay, this waste exists. We've designed industrial processes that naturally produce waste. Now let's do something about it so it doesn't pile up in landfills or pollute our environment. 
What circular economy does that's really different is trying to actually design waste out from the beginning. Mm. So it has to do mm. with design of products that use less resources to start that can be reused, repaired, repurposed, and remanufactured so they're not actually becoming waste. Hmm. And then only that small amount of material that's left at the end then requires recycling. Hmm. So it, it requires kind of a change in thinking from being reactive about resource use and waste to being proactive mm -hmm. and designing it in from the start. So uh, can, I, can I ask for an example? Uh, for example, smartphones. How would they be remade? You know, how would they be rethought if you were thinking of it in the terms of a circular economy? Sure, smartphones are actually a great example because they contain almost every element in the periodic table. And so, when we want to think about redesigning them, we can start from the fundamental basis of what materials go into them. We can look for materials that have a lower environmental impact to manufacture or to extract from the ground and then, and then use. And then we can also think about changing some of the ways that we design these products. So if you actually do the, the dirty work of cracking into a smartphone to see what's inside, one, that's very hard to do. There's no evident screws on the outside. There's no point of access where it makes sense to start taking it apart to repair or reuse it. And so right off the bat, it tells us, well, these could be designed to be easier to access so that consumers can actually repair them. If your screen breaks, if your battery um, ages to where a point where it won't charge well, it, a lot of people just go ahead and buy a new one because they're so difficult to repair. So the first step would be thinking about ways of actually reusing or, or continuing to use these products as long as possible by changing their design. And then the other piece is that, you know, consumers really want sleek, fast products. And when these do end up reaching the recycling, um, recycling plants, they're really hard to recycle too. They're glued together inside, you know, the pieces inside are glued together. There's a lot of materials that are sort of Frankensteins where you've got things combined together that are difficult to separate and recycle. And so we can also think about designing them to be easier to disassemble, easier to recycle and containing materials that have value in them that can actually be reused at the end of life. Okay, but here's the catch. L love uh, Apple, though we do, those of us who are in the Apple cult or, you know, Samsung users <laughs> or, or what have you. Um, those companies are for-profit institutions and will not easily redesign themselves or their products to make this accessible. So I guess my question is, how are we going to do this? Is it a government regulation thing? Because it ain't going to be corporate altruism, right? Sure. And this is what's so challenging about the circular economy is there's no single silver bullet. Yeah. There's no single strategy that's going to solve all of these problems. It really takes a concerted effort across all these different actors in the system. So part of this is the education of consumers to say, hey, you know, when you are done using your phone, here are some places where you can take it to be recycled or even better yet, here are ways of uh, reducing the data on it, getting all your personal data off so it can be reused and retain that value as long as possible. There's a big role for manufacturers here. And, you know, there are opportunities for us to think through redesigning these products to actually make them easier and more cost effective to manufacture and easier to recycle at end of life. And then there's certainly a role for policy. One of the challenges in the United States 
following on the example of smartphones, is there's no federal policy requiring these be recycled. Mm. 25 states and D.C. have laws. They're all a little bit different, really? making it even harder for manufacturers mm. to comply. Tw- sorry. So, tw- sorry, 25 states yeah. have laws that we have to recycle our smartphones? Is California well, one of them? Because I'm in deep trouble. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, and that's that's exactly the problem is because there you have this patchwork of policies. Yeah. Consumers don't really understand what's going on. And so there are a lot of ways to you can actually be part of this system, but we're missing the education and the awareness mm-hmm. of these solutions to actually each of us to take action to be part of it. Hmm. Uh, so but a lot of what you said, though, sounds really familiar. Uh, recycling phones. A lot of people do that. Uh, you go to certain stores, there's out uh, before you enter the store, there's a bins for electronic waste recycling. Um, people are uh, repairing their own devices to some extent. Uh, the you know, right to repair is something I think we're all familiar with at this point. California just passed a law that will take effect next July. Apple supported it. How far along are we here? Uh, it sounds like we've made significant progress. Well, I think that's what's so interesting about this is we do see progress being made in some areas, but circular economy is not just about recycling. It's really this comprehensive suite of efforts. And so technologically, um, the, the problems that we can solve through technology are perhaps those that are slightly more easy to address, but some of these have to be addressed through behavior change and, as you mentioned, changing business models. So, for example, if we think about ways of making this attractive to business, it's about creating new value streams. So this might be changing business models to move away from selling a product to instead selling a service. One classic example of this is power tools. If you think about the number of times in a given year that you use your handheld power drill at home, unless you're a carpenter or actively doing repairs or renovations, the number of times probably can count on one hand. So the question is, do you really need to own a power drill or do you just need to have access to using it when you need it? So this implies ideas like the sharing economy, which is where we might be uh, sharing products and, and, and resources as we need them, or where companies might be thinking about selling services rather than goods that have these physical environmental impacts. So what are the limits to a circular economy, right? I mean, yes, you can get almost all the waste out, but you can't get it all, right? Absolutely. There's always going to be some technical limits, and we can thank the laws of thermodynamics for that. (laughs) Any time that you are changing, say, energy from one form or the other, any time we're processing material, it's never going to be 100% efficient. The other issue that comes up, and especially when we start talking about climate, is that a number of the strategies we try to put in place actually have trade-offs. So when we think about trying to reach climate targets, like reducing our reliance on fossil fuels, electrifying vehicles, increasing the adoption of renewable energy, all of those technologies require materials. Many of those materials are scarce. They're not easily available in, in our existing mining infrastructure, or sometimes they're available in countries where there's geopolitical barriers to, to getting a, a steady stream. And so when we start thinking about trying to meet climate goals, it actually might shift us away from some of these circular economy targets unless we're effectively designing this in to start. And that might be anything from doing fundamental material science to find uh, substitutes for scarce materials. It might be about designing and recycling policies and infrastructures so that we're not putting these renewable energy technologies out into the world without a system in place to recover them at the end of life. And a big part of it is also about education and policy so that all of these things are happening in harmony. 
All right, uh, that's a lot to think about. Uh, Kelly Babbitt, Professor of Sustainability at Rochester Institute of Technology. Uh, thank you for schooling us today. Hmm. Appreciate Kelly, it. thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Great to talk to you. <laughs> I learned something. Um, I learned something. She had me for most of that, except for the part where uh, you need you, we should have visible screws in <laughs> smartphones as opposed to them you're, looking you're sleek and glued. No, I'm sorry. We'll have to think of something else on that, but Fair yes, enough. on everything else. Uh, yeah. And, and it reminded me of this wonderful photo that actually goes around the internet every so often from, from a Daily Mail article in 2013 about a gentleman who put together seeds and water and soil and sealed a big glass bottle and it's been a self-sustaining oh, yeah, yeah, ecosystem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you yes. seen that? It's yes. a wonderful picture. Yes. And it's kind of like the same idea that we can learn from nature right. and create the self-sustaining, yeah. be more self-sustaining. That's right. That's right. You take it from here, Nova. Oh, oh, yeah, it's me. There it's my go. turn. That's right. New, new guy on, new guy <laughs> yeah, on the show. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> we want to hear from you. Let us know what you think about the circular economy as a climate solution. We're at 508-827-6278, also known as... 508 UB Smart. Isn't that smart? We'll be right back. It is smart. I think Bridget Bonner gets the it credit for that phone number. Anyway, here we go. Time for some news. What do you got? Let's do it. Okay. Uh, how many uh, how many predictions have we gotten about which way? about interest rates are going to get cut anytime now. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and a recession is coming anytime now, right? Um, now, uh, the latest Wall Street Journal article I saw this morning that made me chuckle was uh, interest rates are coming, cuts are coming soon, whether there is a recession or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. More wishful thinking. So apparently, uh, there's some evidence that uh, that investors are betting that we're nearing the end of that cycle and, and some easing is on its way, uh, no matter what. I'm not sure if there's enough evidence to support this, but there you go. I will also say that I found it interesting that Deutsche Bank economists came out yesterday, and this is the news this morning, mm -hmm. because it was late yesterday, they did this uh, kind of sticking their neck out and saying, uh, we're still gonna have a recession, it's coming, we, you know, and uh, the and the Federal Reserve, it will be a mild one, and the Federal Reserve will need to cut interest rates in the first half of next year. No way! That's no very way! No soon way! From no I way. know. No Within way. the first half, of next, that's what it said. That's what they're. That's really soon. I was surprised that they were willing to say that, but there you go. That, uh, that conference board today percent not happening. First half. Of next year. No <laughs> conference board today is still sticking to its uh, recession call as well. Uh, in its consumer confidence report. Um, it's, there you go. See. Despite all see. evidence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You got another one? Or are you just going to go with that one? I do. I all do. Right. And uh, Kai, uh, did you get uh, sucked into the whole uh, Black Friday? Uh, you know, I did not. It was really one. funny. I was So on Black Friday, I was standing in the kitchen stripping the turkey yeah. carcass, and my entire family <laughs> and my mother-in-law, my mother actually, not my mother-in-law, were sitting in the family room on their computers going through Black Friday stuff. And I'm like, you guys, get a life, will you? But they're, they're all big bargain hunters. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. Me too. I got completely sucked in. I bought so much clothes and shoes. Did you really? Oh, that's fine. <laughs> I did. I did. Um, but what I found interesting was this morning, uh, um, Amazon put out a list of uh, 
what kind of is uh, what the top selling products were. Of course, some of them were Amazon products because allegedly they tend to uh, prioritize their products in front of people's eyes. Uh, but the number one selling thing um, is something called snail mucin. Ninety-six percent power. So this has become a thing where it's basically like a face lotion made with snail secretion <laughs> filtrate. <laughs> filtrate. Oh my it god! It apparently helps reduce fine lines and improve dull skin. I don't know if I could be paid enough money to put that. Not on enough face. money. <laughs> Not enough money. Not in the world. Uh, there you go. Top selling product. We're gonna we're gonna end the news brief of this part of the podcast today right there with snail mucus, and we're gonna go straight into the mailbag. Just because I can. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Ooh, Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. All right. So in our recent episode about carbon credits, our guest talked about how trees are the only real carbon capture tech we have at scale. And we've got a message about that, uh, about deforestation. This is Chuck in Phoenix. Recently, we had a Make Me Smile related to this, that Brazil's deforestation rate had fallen significantly. But what that means is that only 193 square miles of rainforest were cleared during the month of July. I know how hard you work to explain that when the rate of inflation comes down, it doesn't mean that the prices fall. Mm -hmm. And as we work to yep. figure out how to remove the carbon from the air at the same time as we find green sources of energy, we've got a big challenge on our hands. Yeah, we should do. Sure do. That's a really good point. Yeah, really 193 point. square miles, uh, according to Wikipedia, is about the size of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Hmm. by the way news you can use so, all right one more last week i mentioned an op-ed about why you should not make your family pick you up from the airport we got this from levi so i travel a lot and if someone's coming to pick me up i will often take either like an airport shuttle or an uber to a nearby hotel or restaurant or something so that my family member doesn't have to get stuck in terminal traffic and then you know pay tolls or have to deal with that one person who manages to block like three lanes even though the person they're picking up isn't even on the ground yet uh, it makes it easier on everyone Amen, brother. Amen. And in point of fact, the child in question who we went to pick up the airport, uh, actually, my wife did the, did the driving on that one. She made him walk from Terminal 5 at LAX all the way up to Terminal 7, you know, hauling his bag, just so she didn't Smart. have to deal with that whole big U at, at LAX uh, on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. Yeah. So it works. You know, <laughs> also, works. that is a really good hack. Yeah, uh, it's a good hack. Around, it's a really I had never thought of it, and yeah. why not? Yeah, it's totally. really smart. Totally. Yeah. Before we go, we will leave you as we always do with this week's answer to the Make Me Smart question. What is something you thought you knew but later found out you were wrong about? This one comes from our intern, Neela Farshabandi. I always thought that I need to have an immediate response to any problems that were thrown my way, whether it was a personal dilemma or if my friends and family were sharing an ongoing issue in their life, my mind would start scrambling in a million directions to give what I thought would be the perfect response. But I found that sometimes it's okay not to say anything and try to be a better listener instead. Not every problem has an instant solution. And it's okay to sit with those uncomfortable feelings sometimes and wait until you have a better response. Absolutely. Don't do something. Just sit there. 
Sometimes yeah, so. that is okay. It took me a lot more years to figure that out. Yeah, right, so, right. yeah. Totally. That's a really we, good advice. We should also say Nilafar's last day is this Friday. Uh, and so, you know, we'll say a proper goodbye on Friday, but I just want to get that in everybody's uh, brain pan that uh, her internship with us is coming to an end. We are coming to an end as well, but not until we do this. It is Giving Tuesday today. I don't know if you know this, but Marketplace is the most widely listened to program on business in the economy, public or private broadcasting, commercial or public television. Uh, radio or television, uh, and we cannot do it without you. Uh, so that is why we are here now asking for $100,000 today. If we do get that six-figure amount in donations from individuals, the Marketplace Investors Challenge Fund will lock another, unlock rather, another additional $100,000, and we need the money. We do, and these funds are critical. They help us produce this show every weekday. We can do this if we all come together and chip in, people, take a few minutes, give right now, and check out our new thank you gifts, including wool socks, which look really cool. Nice. Uh, marketplace.org slash give smart, or follow the link in the show notes. I can do some wool socks. Wool socks? Yeah. Today's episode of this podcast, which is called Make Me Smart, was produced by our intern, Neil Farshabandi, with some help from Courtney Bergseeker. Alan Raffles writes our newsletter. Today's program was engineered by Juan Carlos Dorado. Mingxin Tiguan is going to mix it down later on. And Ben Tolliday and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our senior producer is Marissa Cabrera. Bridget Bodnar is the director of podcasts. Francesca Levy is the executive producer of digital. And Marketplace's vice president and general manager and the boss of all of us is awesome. Neil Scarborough. Boss of all of us. All of us. <laughs>